you. Let's go into our message for today. We're going to continue our series in Mark, and we're going to read two verses today, Mark 1, 14 and 15. The Word of God reads, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ways that you've been speaking to us and enlightening us through this series in the book of Mark. We thank you, God, that we can take a look at Jesus and be able to see him through fresh eyes every single week. God, we pray today, once again, through these two verses, open up our hearts to you, open up our minds to you, and Father, help us to realize who we are in your eyes and then be able to take steps forward as a result. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. We pray, amen. You know, life is made up of moments, right? I sound like a coach (laughs) right before, like we're about to go out on an Olympic field. But, you know, life is made up of moments. Some are absolutely insignificant, like maybe what you ate for breakfast this morning. Does anyone remember? Insignificant, insignificant moments. Uh, But others, other moments in life really do have the power to change the whole direction of your life right? 16 years ago, there was this absolutely beautiful girl who walked into Sezun Church, and the moment she saw the pastor preaching, she knew her life would never be the same again. That woman is my wife, you know? Two weeks into our honeymoon, as we're on our honeymoon, we get a call saying that my mother-in-law has hepatitis and she might die, so we have to hurry up and come back to Sydney on my honeymoon. And so, you know, we had planned to never come back to Sydney ever. 17, 18 years later, we're still here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Some moments have the power to change your life. Those are personal moments, but there are global moments, aren't there? Right? In September of 2001, two planes go into these two buildings in New York. And forever, you know, airport security has changed, immigration has changed, technological warfare skyrocketed to new heights of terror and fear. You know, lives of nations literally went in a different direction. COVID is still changing the world right in front of us. And there are also moments of history that literally changed mankind as we know it. You know, the invention of fire, the wheel, agriculture, the printing press, the Reformation spiritually, the discovery of vaccines, antibiotics, the Industrial Revolution, Sputnik. Do you guys know Sputnik? The Internet. To name a few, all of these things have changed us. Who we are today and how we live right now is the direct result of all of those things, those moments in history that literally has changed or have changed mankind. You know, in our passage today, Jesus is declaring that these two verses, these two verses, verses 14 and 15, is one of those history-changing moments. So what happened? And the answer is, Jesus started his ministry. Oh, my God. Right? And I know deep inside you're like, so what? You know, how is, does that change the world? How did that, like, change history? And how is that even significant whatsoever? You know, whatsoever. Because, Eddie, I know that his birth was significant. We celebrate Christmas. I know his death was significant for dying, all that stuff. I know his resurrection was, like, super significant. Without that, we know that he wouldn't be God and all the promises weren't true. But how is, it, how is him starting his ministry 
That's significant. And so today what I'm going to do is I want to share with you two ways on why it's significant and how it's significant. And I decided to share it, share these two points as applications, but just to be fun, I decided to share these two points as negative applications. Okay? Why? Because variety is the spice of life. I always share positive applications, positive things. Today I decided to do something negative. It might, I think negative applications work better for Asians. I know the majority of us are Asians. We get motivated when we feel bad about ourselves. I don't know, that's what's demented about us, but it works. But anyway, let's go ahead. These two verses are so big that Jesus has, Jesus is literally saying, not only is the world going to change as a result of these two verses, but your life has to change as a result of these two verses. So here we go. Here is the first way it's going to change. Number one, you can no longer do what you want to do anymore. Do you feel bad? Is it working already? Right? You can no longer do what you want to do anymore. Before you get too, too depressed, let me explain what this text is saying. There's a lot going on in these two verses. Let's look at verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus comes and he says that he's proclaiming the good news of God, or in other translations it says the gospel of God. Now, usually that's not the normal way to say it, right? Whenever we say the gospel of something, we always say the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So why does he say the gospel of God? What is the gospel of God? Well, when we look at what he's saying, um, uh, what we discover, well, first of all, the reason why we say the gospel of Jesus Christ these days is because as the New Testament progresses, what we really r realize over and over and over again continually is that the reason why we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ is because the gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ, right? It's about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished. That's why we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here Jesus is saying that he came to proclaim the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Simple. He explains it in verse 15. He says that the time has come and the kingdom of God is near. Two phrases that describe the gospel of God. So what does it mean? What is he saying? These two phrases are actually very, very loaded phrases. Once again, we could preach probably for at least half a year on these phrases, but I'll just very, I'll simplify for all of us. They refer to these prophecies which are scattered all throughout the Old Testament. There have been multiple, multiple prophecies about this gospel of God all throughout the Old Testament, and, but it says one very simple thing. It says that God himself will come to establish his reign over the world once and for all. That's all it talks about. That is the gospel of God. The Israelites have been waiting their whole lives, all throughout the Old Testament, for this thing to happen. Right? Isaiah especially prophesied it over and over and over and over and over again. The Jewish people today, if you have any Jewish friends, they're still waiting for God himself to come to establish his reign over all the earth. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God that they've been waiting for is finally here. And it's in God's Son. God is establishing his reign over the world through his Son, Jesus Christ. This Son will be that King, and that King has finally come. But what makes this proclamation really powerful is in the first phrase. It says, the time has come, or other translations, it's the time is fulfilled. Um, if you guys don't know, there's actually two Greek words that, uh, that count for time. You know, the first is like time as in the moment by moment, seconds that pass away. That Greek word is chronos, right? Which is like, like chron chronology, chron 
whatever. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. You know, uh, chronos, right? It's time, like as we know it, the seconds, the minutes, the hours that tick. Uh, but there's another word for time, which is kairos. And it's very interesting. It refers to moments in time that change everything that comes after it as a result of that moment. Kairos. Isn't that a beautiful word? Right? A moment in time that changes everything in history that comes after it as a result of that moment. History-changing moments. And Jesus here is using that latter word, kairos. He's saying that him coming is a kairos moment. Jesus coming to the earth as king is a kairos moment that will change history as we know it. And then there's that word has come fulfilled. And that word has come, or that phrase has come in the NIV or is fulfilled in most other translations. It can literally be translated as super full or completely overflowing. So let me put all this together. When we put all these things together, what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying all of history has been waiting for this particular moment to happen, right? And this waiting has been overflowing ever since the beginning of time. But that moment is finally here. And from here on out, everything that we know must change. This world, the nations, and our lives. Why? Because the king has finally come. Right? The king that's been prophesied ever since the beginning is here now, and he has come to establish his kingdom over the earth. God has finally come into your presence, right? He's come near to you, as our verse says, and therefore everything is going to change. And what exactly, particularly, is Jesus referring to when he says things have to change? And you know what the answer is? Us. We. Have to change. How do we know that? Verse 15. Verse 15 says, Jesus says in verse 15, that this momentous history-changing occasion demands a personal response. You must repent. What is repentance? Repentance is the only proper response to the arrival and the continual presence of the king. It's turning away from living for ourselves, we call that sin, so that we can now live solely for the king who is now here. If I can sum that up, I say, I sum it up as, you can no longer do what you want to do anymore. But the thing is, if you sat under my preaching for the past three years, you would know that Jesus is the last guy to make you do what you don't want to do. He will never force you to obey or follow. He invites, but never forces. Not like the Korean church, right? Not like my parents. When Jesus says that you need to turn your whole life away from living for yourself to live for him, that's an invitation to something greater. He'll never force you to do it, but he's always inviting you into it, right? And we do it not because we're forced to or not because we feel guilty and not because we feel like that's the right thing to do, but we do it as a result of realizing his worthiness. You get one glimpse of how amazing his grace is, and hopefully that's all you want to do. And you realize that it's the greatest opportunity that you've been invited into to give him your whole life. You guys watch MasterChef? I watch MasterChef. I don't watch these days. I don't know if it's even still on. But I used to watch, like, religiously. And I remember there was an episode maybe a few years ago, six years ago. I don't know what it was. And they went, the, the, the contestants that were still in it, they went, they flew to Darwin, 
you know, and they were instructed that they were going to cook for Prince Charles. Do you guys remember this episode? Some of you may. And they were, like, so excited. Who's now the king of England, you know? But back then, he was just the prince. Regardless, that was the closest they were going to ever get to royalty. They were going to cook personally for the, I guess now, the now king of England. And you know what's really interesting about that episode? They land, and they get told, and they all get excited. And then you know what the first thing they do is they say, you guys all need to sit down. And they're like, why? Because you need to hear the rules. Isn't that interesting? And it wasn't rules about cooking. It was about rules that they, things that they could do and things that they definitely couldn't do in the presence of a king. And what was very interesting, if you watch that, is like they're all like smiling. Oh, I can't do that? Oh, okay. I get it. Oh, I can do that? Oh, that's so I can't do that? Okay. You know, that's how it was like. And it was just really amazing. And... They all received it with smiles. Why? Because they revered him that greatly. All those rules made total sense to them. And then there was joy. Because when you're in the presence of a king, there are just some things you can't do. You know what I'm talking about? There's just some things you can't do. As a matter of fact, there are many things that you can no longer do if you hang out with the king forever. Because when the king's in the room, it's all about the king, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying here. You know, when Jesus proclaims that he's coming, there's going to be, he knows, there's going to be some people that don't care. Ah, so what? There's going to be some people that even hate him for coming, right? But for those who are truly happy to see him, for those that understand why he's come and who want to honor him with their lives, then it becomes a joy and a privilege to stop doing what we want to do for ourselves and to recognize that we have been given this amazing opportunity to live in a way that honors him, that makes him happy, and that makes him greater, not only in this world, but in our lives. Verse 15 says that the way we do that is not only by repentance, but also by faith or belief. Faith is acknowledging that the kingdom of God has come to this earth, but maybe more importantly, that it's come into my life. And because of that, every day, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to proclaim how amazing his love for me is. I'm going to proclaim how amazing his grace and forgiveness over me is. I am going to proclaim that he's given me such a great new life that I literally will give my life to him to live for, to make him greater. Right? That's what we do. We make this choice every single day to abdicate or to surrender ownership over our own lives so that he could become greater and he could be highlighted because he's here in my heart, in my life. And I want him to take center stage. This passage is teaching us that if you understand that, then hopefully you understand that Jesus Christ didn't come to be king over just like 50% of your life, you know? He didn't start his ministry. He didn't usher in the kingdom. He didn't, like, suffer and die on the cross and resurrect so that you could have one foot in and one foot out. That's not what kings do, right? Kings don't reign over half-hearted citizens, right? Hopefully they don't. He came to be the king, the sole ruler over our lives. And so Jesus is saying, hey, guys, this is a kairos moment. This is a moment that we need to choose whether it's going to whether we're going to allow that moment that happened to change how we choose to live in the future because 
God became a man. He lived a holy life. He suffered and he was tortured and he died upon the cross so that we could give him all the glory so that he might rule over our lives as king. And the choice you have today is whether you're going to allow that moment, him beginning his ministry, to really be the moment where you surrender and you give your life to him to live for him or whether you're not going to and just live for yourself and case or asra. Do you know what I'm saying? That is the choice that we have before us today. You know, I know these are types, the types of messages that you hear all the time on the pulpit. And I realize, you know, if I know Christians, um, it's a challenge. It's a daily challenge. I don't, you know, I'm sure most of us, none of us disagree with everything that I just preached about. None of us, all of us want that. All of us want God to reign over our lives. All of us know that he's worthy and deserving of all that we have. But the moment, And we want to give it to him. But the moment that we realize that the cost really is that we can no longer do what we want to do with our lives, we kind of don't want to do that. We want to do what we want to do with our lives. And so if that's you and you're in that middle area and you're struggling, I'll give you one practical suggestion, and that's this. Talk to Jesus. That's it. Okay, that's the answer. Um, if you ever find yourself in a moment where this is what you want to do, but you realize that, hey, there's a different choice that I have in this moment to actually make God greater, but the problem is I don't want to do that, what you need to do is you need to talk to Jesus. Even if you never end up doing that second thing, to me it's still a win. How is that a win, Eddie, when I don't even choose to do what's better for God? It's a win because if I know God, the more you hang out with him, and the more you actually talk to him, I, I believe he's going to influence your life eventually. And as long as you keep on talking to God, your life's going to move in this direction. I just know it, right? Isn't that what Sally shared earlier? You keep on knocking, someone's going to open that door. You know what I'm saying? You keep on asking, something's going to happen. You keep on talking to him, you're going to be influenced. And it's great. So keep on doing that, right? Um, as long as you keep on talking to him, he'll eventually win you over. There are famous Christians in the past. Brother Lawrence used to call that practicing the presence of God. He wrote a whole book on that. Right? Other Christians, like the Apostle Paul, called it pray continually. Regardless of what it's called, doing it will change your life. Right? It will slowly but surely make Christ your master. Right? In our passage today, Jesus came to establish himself as king. I hope, becomes, I hope it becomes your greatest joy and honor not to do what you want to do, but to do what honors the king, because the king is here. The second way our life is expected to change is this. Here's number two. It's going to hurt from now on, right? That's the second one, okay? Uh, verse 14 says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming. Okay, that's what verse 14 says. Now, I like the phrase handed over, Jesus, or John was handed over rather than the phrase put in prison. I don't like that. It's a, a different way to translate it is John was handed over. And I like that better because it signifies that John actually had adversaries that wanted him in jail, people who hated him, people who were against him. And so that was, that's there. But it's also, there's a sense when you, when you say that he was handed over that John willfully surrendered himself to suffer for God, right? And that's in there, just like Jesus you know, surrendered himself to become crucified. And he knew and he trusted that God had a much bigger plan for his, through his death, 
and through his life. It's a big one, right? A lot of Christians never get to that point. But John just trusted. When he was arrested, I think he knew he was going to die. But John willfully and willingly surrendered to be arrested because he truly believed that God had a greater plan for his death than with his life. It's a big one. A lot of Christians don't ever get there. I don't know. Hopefully we'll never be in that situation. But now you might, when you read this verse, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee pre-preaching or proclaiming. Now you might think that there's no connection between these two phrases in verse 14. But there actually is great intention here um, that it is written. These two f- phrases are juxtaposed you know, with, against each other. You know, it's simply not uh, a statement of time. This happened and therefore this happened. Mark is not doing that. What Mark is declaring and relaying to every person that's reading this in the first century and beyond, even to today, is this. What he's basically saying is the gospel is proclaimed in adversity, suffering, and death. When we proclaim the gospel, it will always be in an environment of adversity, suffering, and death. That is the context to which, in which the gospel is always proclaimed. Basically, the next time you read about John the Baptist, what do we read about? He gets beheaded, right? And that epitomizes what Mark is talking about as well. John the Baptist to Mark was not just the forerunner of Jesus in terms of the message that he was to preach, but it was also in terms of his fate that he was to suffer, which is death. Almost every time the gospel gets proclaimed in the New Testament from here on out, it is always followed by persecution, right? Whether it's proclaimed by Jesus, the apostles, persecution always followed. The proclamation of the gospel and persecution go hand in hand. Do you guys understand this? When you choose to live for God, when you choose to make your life a model and a message of the gospel, when you choose to serve God with your life, adversity, suffering, and possibly death will become your best friend, will always be there, because this is the context in which the gospel is proclaimed. It's a tough, tough, tough truth, but it is the truth. And we talked a little little bit about that last week. Which then, and here's the big one that I want to share with you today, which should speak powerfully and loudly in our day and age today, Okay? And this is what I mean. If the beginnings of the proclamation of the gospel was always couched and enveloped in suffering and death, and if the rest of the New Testament basically says the exact same thing, every single time they proclaimed, they were persecuted, some people died, a lot of them met adversity of so many different kinds, then here's the question. Why is the church today in 2022 always searching for easier ways and less painful ways, almost avoiding pain, avoiding all cost at all situation in order for us to run this whole organization. It almost doesn't make sense. Like if we want to be successful in gospel proclamation, doesn't it make sense that we should be preparing our people to meet adversity? Shouldn't we be preparing our people to be persecuted and to expect that? Shouldn't we be training our people how to handle that? Isn't that what the purpose of the church should be? If we understand or if we want to be successful in gospel proclamation. Do you guys understand? Do you guys understand what I'm talking about here? 
but the church seems to be going in a different direction, doesn't it? Like we do everything we can so that so to make the entry bar into service as low as we can so that everyone will just volunteer. We do everything we can to make people happy and to keep them in their seats. We do everything that we can to make sure no one gets offended, no one gets hurt. But to me, I almost, it's like we're almost guaranteeing our failure if we do that. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like the church should be training our people to handle adversity, to, to come face to face and to take on persecution if need be. We should be supporting one another, you know, strengthening one another, buttressing each other so that we can handle it together. We can meet opposition together. So that, because we're all, and the reason why is because we're all driven with this desire to make him great. Because we want the gospel to be proclaimed through our church, through our lives, through our ministry. I think the church should become more of a place of training where we train people to endure suffering. It should be a place where we're teaching people that it's only through your willful sacrifice, it's only through your willful submission to get hurt, whether it's emotionally, financially, or socially, that the gospel will actually succeed through us. It's a tough one, isn't it? What do you guys think? What do you guys think about that? If you say yes to those questions, then, oh my God, what does that mean for me to be a church member? I kind of think that if we agree that that's kind of what church should be about, a little bit more, then for me to be a member of a church might mean that we should want and expect to be challenged. We should expect to be uncomfortable. We should expect to be confronted and trained to follow Christ, especially when our desires are to not go in that direction. And hopefully we can be in a very loving way. All to say, if you want your life to be used, for gospel proclamation, it's going to hurt, right? And I think we should all expect that. Um, I'm a little bit saddened as a church leader that uh, currently the church seems to kind of want to move in a different direction from that. I kind of hope all of us wake up to what Jesus is saying here. And he's saying that if you choose to follow me, then the only way to follow me is to choose the path of suffering, right? you got to deny yourself. you got to take up your cross and follow that's the only way he's ever described his path to be. And um, hopefully the church can wake up to that sooner rather than later as well. You know, the gospel journey began with persecution in this verse. It then continued in suffering through Christ's life. It was most glorified through his death and resurrection. And if that's the case, then maybe the gospel message in our lives will be most powerfully utilized when we decide to die and count the cost so that Christ can be preached through our gospel living. Does that make sense? Yes? Uh, to say it simply, if we want to be faithful witnesses of the gospel like John the Baptist was, like Jesus was, like those apostles were in the New Testament, then we got to expect that it's got to hurt from here on out.
my, my oldest son, Alex, used to play soccer. And, you know, he loved it. And, you know, if you ever watch him on the field with his boots on, on a Saturday morning, he's pretty intense. Right? I remember one time he came back and um, he had this worried look on his face after his first game. And he took off his shoes and he pointed to two spots on his feet and he said, it hurts. And I said, okay. He says, you know, Dad, what is this? And I said, oh, don't worry. It's just calluses. He goes, what's calluses? I said, it just means that you tried really hard and you did really well. And then you know what he said? He said, then I want more calluses. I said, oh, that's great, right? Uh, this, if, if you just, uh, the, what I'm about to say is a terrible sound bite. But, so don't ever, like, use it. Hurt can be good, okay? Hurt can be good. It's a sign that you're working hard, you know? It's a sign that you're working hard for the gospel. Persecution, Jesus says, in the Beatitudes, which we studied three years ago, is a fruit of the gospel. Persecution is the fruit. Do you know what I'm saying? The Christian arena in 2022, it's such a wacko place, man. You know? Like, these days in church, like, when the guy gets up here and preaches, like, eloquently, when someone has the power to move people through song and praise leading, you know? Like, if you can actually perform a miracle or do something like that, these are the people that are revered these days in 2022 in church. Christianity. Am I not right? Right? Those are the podcasts we listen to, the YouTube videos we watch, the music we listen to, all that stuff. But do you know what people were revered for before, like pre-1950? Since Jesus to like 1950? It's the people who had scars. Those were the people that we revered in Christianity. Why? Because scars prove that you were a battler. You know? Those are the people we followed. The people who are proven to have given themselves to the fight for the gospel. I've learned in my experience that scarred people a lot of times are proven people. And a lot of times those are the people that hunger for more calluses in their faith. And I think that's something that's missing in today's Christianity. People who hunger for calluses in their faith. Do you guys understand that? Is that what do you call that? What do you call that? That picture, I don't know what you call that. But you, my English is eluding me. Um, we should, that's something I think we should hunger for because one thing's for sure, that if you want to be faithful to Jesus, it's going to hurt from now on. So we can no longer do what we want to do. It's going to hurt from now on. It's not the most positively inspiring of messages today. But it really can be if we want to make him greater. The king is here. And he's saying that this is, there's only one proper response, and that's to live for him alone. Let's strive to be people that, in order to make him greater, live by his rules and are willing to get wounded for it. Let's pray. You know, I know this is not a revival meeting or a camp. Maybe you're like half asleep or fully asleep. It's okay. It's none of those things. But there's no reason why this moment can't be a Kairos moment for you. The moment that you're awakened to realize, oh my God, what am I really doing with my life? What am I really doing with my faith? 
What am I really doing with my church membership? Have I always set the rules? Have I always set the tone? Have I always made it what I wanted to do? Have I always set my own limits on my own commitment to God, if that even makes sense at all? Or am I today going to actually choose to give Christ my life because he deserves it? And because he's worthy of it. And because that's actually what I really do want to do, but I've been making excuses up until now. Can I invite you to allow this moment to be the moment where you choose to live for him? Talk to Jesus. Let's pray. challenge and that's this I know there are some of us I really believe God is speaking to some of us right now but you know the barrier is so funny because the barrier is not anything else except maybe what are my friends gonna think they don't know me like this I want to be you know sold out to God but I've never been like that you know but deep inside I always wanted to be but I kind of fear my friends I fear what other people think of me I fear of other things that's a real cost that's a real thing that you need to face and you need to choose But can I just tell you, can I encourage you to make that choice? Because, you know, God is so proud of you. God loves you. You're his kid, you know. And there's nothing that can change his love for you, no matter what you choose. But when you do choose him over your friends, when you you do choose to live for him, no matter what anyone thinks, there's no one that's prouder. And if you know Jesus, and if you're struggling right now, you do know Jesus... That's the greatest place to be, isn't it? Knowing that your dad is so proud of you. Choose it. So I'm just going to give 30 more seconds to a minute for people to talk to God. Let's pray.
we thank you so much. You are so worthy. We thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, so that we could know you. We thank you for sending your son in the flesh so that he could rule over our lives and so that we could realize who we were really created for. And God, I know it's a difficult road to choose, but Lord, help us, teach us, train us to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ alone, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we might endure the race ahead of us, so that we might endure the road ahead of us. Because Father, uh, as difficult as that road might be, we're so thankful that you have a greater plan through that road that you may even have for our life. We thank you, God, so much. We want that. We want you to be great within our lives. That's it. Not just help us. But God, I also pray a prayer for the church. It's going in some different directions these days. And who am I to judge it? But God, I know it doesn't seem like the church that we read about in the Bible. You know? So God, I pray that you purify the church, that you challenge the church, that you cause the church and church members to want you and to want to be the place where you love to dwell. And we might have to make some hard choices, and choices that actually might steer us in the direction of pain in order to have that. But God, give us the courage to do that so that we might have you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.